Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. <clears throat> My essay this week is called Aaron and the Gods of Gold. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 12, 2008. Come, make us gods who will go before us. So we read in Exodus 32, verse 1. Before Moses ever descended Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, the second of which reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol, the Hebrews grew impatient. They hectored Aaron for a golden calf. They built an altar so they could bow down to their gods of gold. In this ancient story, so evocative with contemporary applications, the people worshipped a golden god, sacrificed to it, we read in 32.6 that they indulged in revelry and proclaimed national celebrations. Idols lure us with powerful illusions and misplaced hopes. They make seductive promises. These false gods come in all sizes and shapes. They promise much, but deliver little. We can idolize almost anything, career, race, gender, sex, wealth, age, and especially nation. Our personal gods are so petty and pathetic that they would be laughable if they weren't so insidious and corrosive. The robust health of the advertising industry testifies to the power of our puny household gods. Personal idols are child's play compared with national idols. National idolatries are more global than personal, more public than private, more institutional than individual. National idols wreak far more violence upon humanity than our household gods. The most vicious of these is the war god. C. Wright Mills once used a suggestive description when he spoke of a quote-unquote military metaphysic, by which he meant a way of construing every national aspiration or international problem in distinctly military terms. In the last hundred years alone, at least 200 million people, mainly civilians, have been sacrificed to the war gods. The idol of war, writes Chris Hedges, is the most common and destructive form of idolatry, one that has left most religious institutions morally bankrupt. Orthodox, evangelicals, Catholics, and liberal Christians have all invoked God to justify war's slaughterhouse and orgy of destruction, used as a means to secure and expand national interests. A Catholic priest, for example, in Guatemala blesses weapons and soldiers. Pat Robertson calls for the assassination of a head of state. Religious liberals romanticize the Marxist Sandinista government. And Serbian Orthodox priests countenance ethnic cleansing. Without the wholehearted complicity of conservative evangelicals, American militarism would have been inconceivable, says Andrew Basevich, 
a tragic irony when you consider that the most Christian nation on earth did far less to repudiate the war gods than many ostensibly secular nations. <clears throat> In his book, The New American Militarism, 2005, Andrew Basevich desacralizes our idolatrous infatuation with military might, and he does so in a way that avoids the partisan cant of both the left and the right. Idolizing militarism, Basevich says, is far more complex, broader, and deeper than scapegoating either political party, accusing people of malicious intent or dishonorable motives, demonizing ideological fanatics as conspirators, or replacing a given administration. Not merely the state or the government, but society at large, he says, worships the war gods. Our military idolatry, says Basevich, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness. It perverts our national policies. He says that we've normalized war, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman, measured our national greatness in terms of military superiority, and harbored naive expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. In 2005, for example, the United States accounted for 48% of the entire world's military spending, which is to say that our one country nearly spent more on the military than the rest of the world combined. Our Department of Defense says that America deploys 254,000 personnel to 725 military bases in 153 countries. Our own country is home to 969 additional bases in all 50 states. By these budgetary metrics, the United States sacrifices its people and its treasure to the war gods like no nation on earth. In his book called Overthrow, Stephen Kinzer examines the 14 times in the last century that the United States has toppled foreign governments. Specialists can debate the nuances of what constitutes a coup, covert activities, mixed motives, and historical consequences. But by giving us the big picture, Kinzer reminds us that American ge geopolitics is hardly benign or altruistic. No nation in modern history, he says, has done this so often in so many places so far from its shores. Way back in 1795, James Madison warned that of all the enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. The text from Isaiah chapter 25 for this week says that to understand God in terms of narrow militarism and nationalism is to create an idol in your own image. 
Three times Isaiah identifies ruthlessness as a besetting national sin. Isaiah 25, verses 3, 4, and 5. Instead, says Isaiah, God longs to prepare a rich banquet for all people, to eliminate everything that separates all nations, to wipe away the tears of all faces, and in stark contrast to our idolatry of militarism, God longs to swallow up death forever. And now for further reflection. <clears throat> for further reading, see David Livingstone Smith, The Most Dangerous Animal, Human Nature and the Origins of War. New York, St. Martin's Press, 2007. Secondly, try to find people who are both Christian believers and veterans of ac active military duty with whom to discuss military idolatry. Number three, can you think of examples of our culture's idolatry of war? And finally, meditate on the poem, which is posted on our site, by Wilfred Owen, 1893 to 1918. The title of the poem is a Latin phrase, Dulce et decorum s. By some accounts, this is the most famous war poem of World War I. The title are the first words of a Latin saying, taken from an ode by Horace, that end the poem, Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. It is sweet and right to die for your country. After graphic descriptions of his own experiences in war, Wilfred Owen's poem calls this the big lie. For books this week, I review Adam Hamilton, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, Nashville, Abington, 2008, 246 pages. In 1990, Adam Hamilton founded the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. After starting with four people, today their weekly attendance numbers about 7,500 worshipers. Along the way, Hamilton has written at least a half dozen books, the most current one urging what he calls a radical center that moves beyond the tired debates between evangelical conservatives and mainline liberals. Elsewhere, Hamilton has advanced the language of, quote, liberal evangelical or evangelical liberal, end quote. This book, he writes in his introduction, is my attempt at laying out one Christian's view of a Christianity of the via media, or the middle way between the extremes of a Jerry Falwell and a John Shelby Spong. That's not to say that he argues for a mushy middle or some lowest common denominator. Far from it. The call of Jesus, he says, is radical. But because of the transcendence of God, 
in the fallenness of humanity, we should never claim to understand the Jesus way perfectly. Nor do we have to, for to do so would be a horrible burden. What Hamilton argues for is not moderation, but modesty. He embodies the so-called peace saying of Peter Miterlin, a Lutheran pastor who had grown tired of the rancor and division caused by doctrinal disputes in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. In the early 1620s, Peter Miterlin wrote a book using the pen name Rubertus Melbanius. The title was A Prayerful Admonition for Peace to the Theologians of the Augsburg Confession. In it, he urged what has now become a familiar and famous phrase, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Adam Hamilton is a fine example of an articulate pastor who's followed the Wesleyan quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. He's listened carefully for the intimations of the Spirit in his own life and in the lives of his parishioners, and then incorporated these experiences into his reasoned interpretation of Scripture. He tackles head-on a dozen or so litmus test issues that have divided Christians. The Bible, science, evolution, world religions, hell, evil, doubt, ethics, abortion, homosexuality, war, and politics. These are short chapters with sparse footnotes and excellent stories. They aren't intended as a substitute for a deeper study of complex issues that Hamilton would robustly recommend. Rather, what we get is the opportunity to look over the shoulder of a gifted pastor as he studies the scriptures, cares deeply for his people, and celebrates the good news of Jesus. Questions at the end of the book for each chapter encourage further thinking. I would have enjoyed a list of books for further reading. Readers who expect Hamilton to solve the problems he raises will be disappointed, because that's precisely what he does not do. In the 23 short chapters, he makes no pretense of offering a comprehensive analysis of the questions. Rather, he illustrates in a winsome manner how one believer has taken to heart the advice in one of John Wesley's most famous sermons. The title of the sermon was Catholic Spirit from 1755. Listen to John Wesley. Though we cannot think alike, May we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? Without all doubt, we may. Herein all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. Adam Hamilton, seeing gray in a world of black and white. <clears throat> For film this week, I review a film from Israel and Egypt. The title is The Band's Visit from 2007. 
The case for this DVD advertises that this movie has earned over 35 international awards. In my mind, it has earned every one of them. Pitched as a comedy, the film moves beyond mere laughs to that deeply human place in each one of us, no matter what your language or culture. Eight members of the Alexandrian Police Ceremonial Orchestra from Egypt, complete in their powder blue band uniforms, are on a visit to the Arab Cultural Center in Pet Hatikva, Israel. But a bad bus ride strands them in the isolated and desolate village of Bet Hatikva. In their broken English, members of the band and their Israeli hosts communicate across the boundaries of language, culture, gender, and, of course, millennia of mutual suspicions. But with the help of music and the vulnerabilities they experience because of their predicament, they open themselves up to each other's stories. One reviewer described this film as light-hearted, but not lightweight. In English, Hebrew, and Arabic, with English subtitles. The Band's Visit, from 2007. <clears throat> For poems this week, we've posted a prayer by John Wesley. It's a famous prayer, often called the Covenant Prayer of John Wesley. Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. Listen to John Wesley's covenant prayer. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. The Covenant Prayer of John Wesley Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 12th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.